0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. And I'm happy to see all of you here this evening. Um, We're delighted to welcome Stephen Gimbel here um, for this, uh, this talk this evening. Professor Gimbel's new book, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, is Einstein's Jewish Science, Physics at the Intersection of Politics and Religion. So, is is relativity Jewish? The Nazis called Einstein's revolutionary theory Jewish science. Uh, Professor Gimbel looks at Einstein and his work and explores how his beliefs, background, and his environment may or may not have influenced the work of of his science. Um, This book was published last summer, and since then it's garnered uh, considerable media attention. Um, I was really pleased to see it, on, uh, see it reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review. I said, "Whoa, wow, a Johns Hopkins University Press book here on the front page. And that was back in August, I believe. And um, then I had the pleasure of meeting Stephen at the Baltimore Book Festival in September. Um, one reviewer, Don Howard, writing in Physics Today, said, and I quote, one might imagine that everything important and worth saying about Einstein has by now been said. But then comes along a delightful book reminding us that the history of such an important figure as Einstein is virtually inexhaustible, end of, end of quote. And of course, the, book that, the delightful book that um, Mr. Howard is referring to is Einstein's Jewish Science. Um, it has been named a finalist for the National Jewish Book Awards Prize for History. Stephen Gimbel serves as chair of the philosophy department at Gettysburg Pop College. He is the author of two previous books, um, Exploring the Scientific Method and Defending Einstein. And we're very happy to have you here this evening.
1: This is a little strange. This is a home game. (laughs) Not only did I grow up in Baltimore, but I've got family. I've got former students. I have current students. No, this is not extra credit. (laughs) Wow. And a gorgeous room. This is just beautiful. Einstein. We love Einstein, don't we? Everyone loves Einstein. And the question is, not well, maybe not everyone, <laughs> <laughs> except that guy. And the question is, what is it about Einstein? Now, this is a project that actually began a number of years ago. Uh, a colleague of mine, who's our Judaic studies fellow, came into the office. He was talking, and he was talking about ethics. Now. He's he's in our religious studies department, but he's a trained philosopher. He says, you know, when we teach ethics, we teach it in a particular way, right? We start with, you know, ethical questions. And as philosophers, we're really not terribly interested in that. We're not interested in what is right and wrong, but how do you go about determining what is right and wrong? What we're interested in are these larger systematic questions. Really? Oh, for the podcast. Oh, sorry, for the podcast. So we're interested in these larger systematic questions. How do you go about determining what is right and wrong? And what we do is we look at what are called ethical systems, right? What they are basically just definitions of our basic moral vocabulary. Moral rightness, moral wrongness, moral permissibility, right? So if I were to say, Steve is wearing green pants, that sentence is true, right? Now, no. If we were to have a debate about whether or not I was wearing green pants, this is something that is easily and objectively decidable, right? My editor. The book is in black and white, we're okay. We can either go into brighter light and have a conversation, but if we're still in disagreement... Right? We could go over to Hopkins, get a spectrometer, stick it underneath, see right where exactly that bar is. Right? And then, oh, that's in the green or the gray. Right? So the idea is it's determinable. We know what we mean by the word green. So I'm saying Steve is wearing green pants. That sentence, Steve is wearing green pants, right? That sentence is true if Steve is wearing green pants. And the fact is, in reality, my pants are green and they are being worn by me, right? So the sentence is true, but what do we mean when we take an ethical sentence, right? It is morally wrong to hit your sister on the head. It's my son. He should know that, right? Notice she's sitting far away from him, right? When we say morally wrong, what do we mean there? We know what it means for one to hit one's sister on one's head, right? We know what will happen as a result, right? But what does it mean for something to be morally right or morally wrong? What is that property, right? It seems to be something different from greenness. And what we have are these moral systems that go in and determine what is right and wrong. And we have five of them by and large. And as philosophers, we dutifully go through them. There's Aristotle, there's Mill, there's Kant, and we work our way through. And what my friend was arguing was that this is actually a Christian approach to ethics. Right? What he's saying is that there is a presupposition underlying all of it that actually has a certain theological baggage to it. Right? What he says is notice what's happening there. What's happening is that we say there is a single right answer right? It is right or it is wrong, and there is a particular interpretation that gets you to that right answer. He says, if you look at Christian theology, that's really the foundation, right? There is a sacred text, the New Testament, right? And there are interpretations, and what you have are different sects that think they have the proper interpretation that gets you to the absolute truth. He says, if you look at Jewish ethics, it's a very different approach. He says, we have a dialogical approach. Dialogical is just a fancy word for we argue a lot. That's just What Jews do. And the idea is that if you look, right, so for Jews, we have, right, really two sacred texts. One is the Torah or the Old Testament, or as we call it, Testament, right? And then you've got the Talmud, right, which is a book that talks about the book. And the idea is that you take a passage and this rabbi says this, this rabbi says this, this rabbi says something else, and you're tempted to ask, well,
0: which one's right?
1: Right? the voice of god he knows <laughs> teach me right which one is right well for Jews it's not a question right right the idea is that each one the argument goes elucidates a different element of the truth so there is an absolute truth in the text but What we see in each of these interpretations is just a different point of view that gives you a different element of the deeper truth. The idea is that the truth is too big to fit in any one interpretation, and it's only through seeing things through other people's eyes that you get a deeper sense of wisdom, right? So when rabbis are trained, you always train with a partner. And there's a question on the table. This guy takes one side, you take the other, you argue as hard as you can, and then you switch, the idea is that you need to be able to argue it from both sides in order to see the wisdom from both sides the idea is that you have to remove yourself from your own little perspective to see this deeper truth and this is what he was arguing is a fundamentally jewish point of view and he was talking and talking which is not unusual and then something strange happened i started listening <laughs> and i said i know that form of reasoning I've seen that someplace else. Einstein. And then something even stranger happened. He stopped talking. And we looked at each other and he said, What? And I, I explained, I said, you know, Einstein has a way of reasoning. See, it's it's something that's often lost on people that scientists have styles. Right? I mean you think music, right? You put on an album, you know, album, okay. You set your iPod to shuffle, and a song comes on. And within the first couple bars, you know who it is, even if it's not your iPod. Don't steal somebody's iPod. Right? The idea is that musicians have styles. Right? You can know within a couple of bars if you're listening to Mozart. Right? If you're listening, you just you know. But science, we think science is different. And part of that is because of how we're taught. Think about how we teach science. Right? If you walk into a college classroom, the first thing you have to do is go to the bookstore and buy a $300 textbook, probably called something like Elements of Chemistry or Biology. They're not very clever, and they don't need to be, because you're going to buy their $300 textbook no matter what they title it. You have to, right? And you open it up and you read a chapter, and at the end of the chapter there are problems. And for the even number problems, in the back of the book, there are always the answers, right? And you can determine whether or not you understand it by whether you got the answer or not. And so we think this is what science looks like, right? There is a way of doing it, and when you do it right, you get the answer. Yeah, it's not really that simple when you look at how real science is done. Real science, they don't have answers in the back of the book. They haven't written the book yet. Right? What's happening in that textbook is you get a very cleaned up, sterilized picture of science. Science is messy. Science is done by scientists. I'm a philosopher. I say deep things. And scientists are people. And people come from times, come from places, have backgrounds. Right? Scientists are going to think the way they think because they are who they are. And what's interesting is that when you look at Einstein, there's a particular style And it happens to match, and we'll get into this a a bit deeper in a bit, that Jewish way of thinking that my colleague was sketching out. Now, he looked at me, I looked at him, and we both had the same thought. You don't have tenure. This is an article. (laughs) And so we wrote it. And the thing is that everywhere we presented it, whether it was a popular audience like this, whether it was at a philosophy conference, whether it was at a history of physics, people just went nuts for it. I thought, wow. Wow. This needs to be a book. And my friend decided to go off and pursue other things. But I worked on it, and it was interesting. You know, the minute you start thinking about Einstein and anything connected with Jewish thought, what immediately pops to mind is this phrase, Jewish physics or Jewish science. Now, this is not a phrase that I coined. This is a phrase that came about from a group of people between the world wars, a group of Nazi sympathizers, who were trying... To undermine the growing support for Einstein's theory of relativity. And they did that by labeling it Jewish. Now, why did they do that? Well, when you deal with anything connected to the Nazis, right, the first instinct is, there they go again. It's just silly, okay, just ideological claptrap, right, just nonsense. But when you look, the people who were putting this forward, right? The the people who were leading this movement in Aryan physics, they called it, were two guys. One named Philip Lennard and another named Johannes Stark, both of whom had Nobel Prizes in physics. So these weren't just random nut jobs. These were really, really smart nut jobs. (laughs) Now, smart people can be wrong about things. Just ask my wife. Right? Smart people can be very wrong. Smart people can be dangerously wrong. But when a smart person says something, it's worth taking it seriously because if you don't, it may pop up again. And so we started to think about this phrase, Jewish science. And the question is, is there any way we could take this phrase and do with it what, say, the gay and lesbian community has done with the word queer? Appropriate it. Take it over from them. Take this phrase that had such a horrible origin and rehabilitate it, reinterpret it, make it into something That is actually reason to be proud. Now, what's interesting is if you hang out with Jews, talk to them for any length of time, it's not going to be long until you hear the phrase, you know he's Jewish. It's like Jewish jeopardy, right? (laughs) The idea is a conversation is going, as soon as the name comes up, you have to be the first one to ring it. You know he's Jewish. Ah, Ten points for you. But there's one guy, one person you never, ever, ever have to say, you know he's Jewish. Einstein. He's super Jew. He's uber Jew. Why? What is it that gives Einstein this special place? Now, yes, he was a Zionist, but he was a scientist who happened to be a Zionist, unlike, say, Chaim Weizmann, who happened to be, you know, he was a Zionist who happened to be a scientist. Right? What is it? If it's not something in the science, then we turn Einstein just into, you know, the scientific version of Adam Sandler. Right? He's just another famous Jew. But there's it seems like there's got to be something. And so the question was, what is it? Is there any way to understand the theory of relativity such that we can meaningfully say, it is Jewish science? And so we started to think, now, you know, it, it does seem like, you know, an absurd question. Science is science. Sure, there may be people from backgrounds, but, you know, look, it, it, it has to be put out there in the open and tested, right? Science is science. There's no such thing as science from a particular place, but what's interesting is the theory of relativity, and we'll talk about the details of it in a little bit, is a theory of space, time, and gravitation. Now, the theories of space, time, and gravitation that came before Einstein were, working backwards in time, that of Isaac Newton and before him, Rene Descartes. These were our first two major theories of space, time, and gravitation, and what's interesting is that both of them are examples of religious science. Newton, as we'll see, is, in a certain sense, Protestant science. And Descartes is Catholic science. Let's start with Descartes. We'll start from the back and work forward. Now, the most important thing that happened in the life of René Descartes didn't happen to Descartes. It happened about a, half a generation before him to a guy named Galileo now. We'll rehearse the Galileo story, right? The idea here is Galileo did not invent the telescope. That was invented by some Dutchmen. But Galileo did get his hands on one of the early ones. Now, Galileo was the son of a musician, which meant he was poor. (laughs) And if you're poor, you need one thing, and that is money. Right? Now, He was, Galileo was a showman, okay? We think of him as this sort of scientific saint, right? This saint of object, no, 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 no. He was as slick a salesman as you would ever find. And what he was doing at the time, you know, he needed money. He was a mathematics professor, right? And so he was following the advice of that famous philosopher, Willie Sutton, says that if you want to find, right, why did he do what he did, you know? Why did he, he was a bank robber. He wasn't a philosopher. And they asked him, why did you rob banks? And his answer was, that's where the money is. And so Galileo needed money, so he did work where the money is, which then, like now, was with the military. The Italian government hadn't sequestered them. Right? So the idea is he was working on mathematical problems, problems of... Uh, the trajectories of projectiles, right? So if I have a cannon and I want to hit an enemy camp this far, what angle do I need? And so this is what he was doing. And so then he gets a hold of a telescope. Now, who is it that needs to see things far away as if they're close up? Oh, he could sell this thing to the army, to the navy, to merchants. set. This thing could be huge. And so he mounts one at the top of the Piazza San Marco and you could see out into the harbour, the ships coming in, and he's just working it and he's working it. Now, nighttime comes because it does every day. And you gotta understand these were the days before television. Right? So I mean at the time, you know, the real housewives of Verona were really housewives in <laughs> Verona. And so there's, you know, it gets dark out, what do you do? There's nothing to do. You've got a telescope. What's the obvious thing? You're going to look up. And you're going to look up at the night sky. And the first thing you're going to look at in the night sky is the biggest thing up there, which is the moon. The moon. Now, you look at the moon through any power of telescope. What are you going to see? Craters that go down and mountains that go up. Right? Now, you have to understand that at the time, the Official Physical Doctrine of the Catholic Church Was Aristotle Now Aristotle has an interesting theory It's, It's sort of backwards from the way we think of it right? We think of physics as being Primary and chemistry as just being Fancified physics For Aristotle it's actually backwards For Aristotle if you want to understand the motions of things You need to understand what they're made of And for all things that are close to the earth They're made up of one Or a combination of four elements Earth Water, fire, and air, right? Now, when Aristotle says earth is at the center of the universe, he doesn't mean what we mean. We think, oh, the planet of the earth is at the center of all things. No, when he said earth, he meant dirt, right? I mean, if I take a handful of dirt and I drop it, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. How? Straight down, right? So what he means is that all things seek their natural place. Everything has a place where it should be. And once it gets there, it just rests. So for earth, for soil, anytime it's removed from the center of the universe, if you drop it, it's naturally going to seek its natural place. Now, they knew the earth was round. right? It was not Columbus. Your teachers try to tell you that. You come see me. The Greeks knew the earth was round. Not only that it was round. <clears throat> excuse me. They knew how big it was, too. I mean a stunning degree of accuracy. So they know it's spherical. So if any place you go, the earth drops straight and straight and straight, right? Where's it going? It's going in towards the center, right? So, when we say earth is at the center of the universe, what we mean is the natural resting place of dirt is at the center. Now, If I were to take this water, unscrew the cap, turn it over, what happens to the water? It goes down. But now, if I were to add the water to the dirt, what do I get? Yes, the 10-year-old knows that one well. Mud, right? But after a while, what's going to happen to that mud? It dries up, right? The soil will... Right. The water is on top of the dirt, right? The, The dirt sort of settles out. Now, you got to remember, these are Greeks. They live on a peninsula and lots of islands. They're doing lots of sailing. They know water. And then if you go down far enough under the water, what do you get to? You get back down to the, the earth. So they know. So the idea is that you have earth at the center. You have water outside. right? Now, if you go underwater and you exhale, what do you get? Bubbles. And the bubbles all go up. Right? Because the natural place of air is above the water. right? Now, if I were to take a lighter and light the lighter, do not smoke. You light the lighter, where does the flame go? Up. If I turn the lighter over, what happens? You burn your thumb. Don't do that. Why? Because the flame always wants to go up because the natural place of fire is outside. right? That's the four earthly elements, and that explains for Aristotle all physical interactions. But when you get outside of that realm. When you get to the moon on out, things move differently. They don't move in straight lines. They move in circles. Because they're made up of a different element, a fifth element, what we call ether. And ether is a more perfect element. And so things in it move in a more perfect way. They move in a circular way, right? We know that the moon rises and sets. The sun rises and sets. The fixed stars rise and set. Everything moves in circles. Now you have planets, which sort of every once in a while move back the other way, and so we needed circles on circles, but the idea is everything is moving in this combination of circles because it's a more perfect element, and if it's made up of something more perfect, its shape will have to be more perfect, and so all heavenly bodies are spherical. So the moon, according to the church, is a perfect sphere. Galileo looks up through his telescope, and what does he see? craters that go down, mountains that go up. Down and up, not round. Oh. Now, you got to understand Galileo, he was a troublemaker. So he sees craters and mountains on the moon. First thing he does? Gets a priest. Invites him over, has him look through the telescope. Turns white. Realizes what he sees. And he looks up at Galileo with a little bit of fear in his eyes and says, okay, okay, I know know what it looks like. (laughs) But really, there's an invisible fluid as high as the tallest mountain encasing the moon, making it perfectly spherical. Galileo said, yeah, you're right. There is an invisible fluid. But it makes the mountains twice as tall and the craters twice as deep. So he writes up a book called The Starry Messenger. If you ever get a chance to see this book, it it belongs in a room that looks like this. It's just a gorgeous book. I mean, it has these hand-drawn illustrations by Galileo. He's just chronicling every new discovery he's finding with this telescope, and it's gorgeous. And it points out all the ways in which Aristotle can't be right. But of course, Aristotle was the official physical theory of the Catholic Church, right? Coke was the official soft drink of But Aristotle was the official doctrine. And so he gets himself into some trouble. They haul him before the Inquisition. Galileo. Yeah. Did you write that book? What book? The one with your name on it. Yeah, I I wrote that that book. You know what it says. Yeah, I, I, I wrote it. You're not supposed to say that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And so they gave him a choice. Either he could recant everything he had written and never write on it again, or he could die. Not so hard of a choice. (laughs) So he recants, he promises never to write again, and off he goes. Now, he had a friend named Barberini, who was a cardinal, and they would take these long walks together, and they would argue about astronomy, right? You know, Galileo would take you know, the the Copernican view that the sun was at the center and everything went around the sun and Barberini would take the Ptolemaic view that the earth was at the center and then they would have these knock down, drag out arguments as they walked through beautiful Italy and then the Pope died. Usually that's what happens. (laughs) And then they elected a new one which as we saw today also occasionally happens and when the white smoke came out who was the new pope? Barberini. He was Urban Thirteenth. Yes. He came after the pope before him, Suburban, the eighth, who now the patron saint of minivans, I think. <laughs> and so Galileo was thinking, hey, my buddy's the pope. This is a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is fantastic. And so he requests permission to write another book. And this one is going to be fair and balanced. And we know how well that works. And so he writes a book called A Dialogue Concerning Two Chief Systems of the Universe. Actually, it wasn't a dialogue. It was a trialogue. There were three guys in it. One who was championing uh, Galileo's point of view, Segredo, right, sage-like. Another, who's in the middle? He wasn't sure which way to go. And then there was the one who was championing the church's view. Who just happened to seem a whole lot like the Pope. And his name? Simplicio. Translate roughly to Bozo. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's actually named after Simplicius, the Neoplatonic philosopher who held his. Yeah, no, 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 no. So he gets hauled back up before the Inquisition. Galileo? Yeah. Did you write this book? What book? The other one with your name on it. Yeah, I, 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 I wrote that one. Didn't we tell you not to? Yeah, I did. Yes. And so they gave him another choice. Either he could recant and live the entire rest of his life in his Italian villa, or he could die. Now, if you have a choice between death or living in an Italian villa, this is not a hard choice. <laughs> and so he spends the rest of his time there. Now, this was a show trial. This was meant to send a message to the intellectuals of Europe. This was meant to tell them where the boundary was. Now, Descartes gets the message. And you've got to understand, Descartes is not like Galileo. Right? I mean, Galileo, right, the famous story right, that's probably apocryphal, is at the end of the second trial, right? under his breath, he mutters three words moves. What was that? Oh, I I said I have new shoes. But it moves. That's what he wasn't allowed to say, that the earth moves. And so Descartes, who is very much a religious Catholic, also is a man of science. He believes in the Copernican picture. He believes that the earth goes around the sun. But he's a good Catholic, which means, look, I've got to take the Pope seriously right now. The Pope, and this was the previous Pope, convened a group of theologians to study the problem and they came out with a proclamation that the earth does not move. And it became what was called a papal bull, which is probably the worst possible name for something that's supposed to be (laughs) absolutely true. Now, the Pope says the earth doesn't move. Now, Being Pope comes with two main advantages. One is the hat. It is a great hat. And the second one is that when you speak ex cathedra, when you speak of matters of doctrine, you are infallible, right? Of course, this is why the Pope can't be married, because then he'd be wrong about everything. My wife is here, so... Clearly, I need to get a more comfortable couch. So the idea here is that the Pope says that it's got to be right. So Descartes finds himself in this really weird position. How can I both say that the earth goes around the sun and believe what my faith requires of me, which is the earth doesn't move? (sighs) Seems like you can't, right? I mean... Galileo thought they were incompatible and thought that the church needed to change. But here's Descartes. And Descartes, you got to understand, Descartes was very different. Descartes Descartes was a very nervous, very mousy kind of little guy, right? He, first thing he did when he started thinking about this stuff is he got up and he left France and he moved to Holland. Why Holland? It's Protestant, exactly. So it's going to give him at least a little bit more, but that's not enough. Every three weeks, he moved to a different place. And on all of his correspondences, all of his letters, he left fake return addresses. This is how nervous this guy was. He knew this, 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 this could cause trouble. So what are we going to do? How can we combine? Earth doesn't move. Earth goes around the sun. How do? You, okay. When the pope's theologians say the earth doesn't move, what do they mean by move? Ooh. Maybe this is the way, right? So, is this pen moving? Well, relative to you, it is. Relative to me, it isn't. Maybe that's the way. Yeah, that's not going to work either. Because, right, when the Pope says it doesn't move, he means it doesn't move, right? Popes say things like that, right? So, it's got to be something more absolute. Okay, so what could it be? Motion. How do we understand motion? Well, Did I move? How do you know? This is the easy question. We'll get harder. (laughs) I was over there. Now I'm over here. I changed my location. I changed my place. I'm at a different point in space. (gasps) Oh. So over here, I'm surrounded by this space. Over here, I'm surrounded by different space. So if you change... What space you're surrounded by over an amount of time, that's motion. Brilliant, right? This makes sense. So now we just need to understand, well, what is space? Oh. Now, between the tip of her nose and the tip of my nose is a distance, right? We can measure that distance. What are we measuring? Well, we have to be measuring something, right? Because if you can measure it, it has to be real to be measured, right? I mean, if I were to ask you, how tall is Santa Claus? Could you answer that question? No. Santa doesn't have a height. Why? Santa Claus doesn't exist. I'm Jewish. I love doing that. You guys got all the good presents. Payback. Right? So, the idea is there is no Santa, so there's nothing to be measured. If we can measure it, there must be a thing there to be taking a measurement of. We can measure distances in empty space, which means empty space can't be empty, it has to be full of space. Right? So if I can talk about distances, areas, volumes, and space, there has to be something real. Space, according to Descartes, is an object. It's real. It's a thing. And if it's a thing, it can affect other things. And so maybe it can drag things along with it the same way that, you know, a leaf on a, a stream gets downstream, right? Maybe it's the same way. So think about what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to account for two different kinds of motion. Close to the earth, I need motion that goes straight down. Far away from the earth, I need motion that goes in a circular manner. Where can I get that? Whirlpools. Vortexes, right? So if we had a bathtub here, right? And let's pull the drain plug. What happens around the drain? You get that whirlpool, right? Now let's, let's turn on the spout so that the, the amount of water stays fixed in the tub. So we just have this permanent permanent whirlpool. Now, if I have my rubber ducky, and I put it out here, what does it do? Ah, we're all the way out here. It goes around the drain. Circular. But if I get that rubber ducky too close to the drain, now what happens? It gets straight down. <gasps> Look what we have. Straight line motion, circular motion. So if we posit that every object with mass causes a vortex in space, We can now account for all the observable phenomena. So notice what we have. We have a model designed to account for observable phenomena. This is real science. This is our first scientific theory of gravitation. This is science. But what about the Pope stuff? Okay. Now instead of a rubber ducky, let's take a water balloon. I take a balloon, I stuff a marble inside, I fill it with water, and I tie it off. Right? Now, I put the water balloon out here around the whirlpool, what's going to happen? The water balloon's going to circle the drain, right? But if you were sitting on the marble, what would you see? The same water surrounding you all the time. If movement is being surrounded by one bit of water and then a- another bit of water, because the marble is forever bathed in that same water, what can we say about the marble? It's not moving, even though it's going around there it is! How clever is that? Right, The earth has mass, so it has a vortex around it, which means it is forever bathed in the same space. So as the earth is going around the sun, it's always surrounded by the same space, which means it's not moving. Look what we have. Earth goes around sun. Earth doesn't move. Bingo! We have a theory of gravitation, which meets the theological constraints with which Descartes was working so what do we have we have catholic science it is science it's a theoretical model to account for observations it is science but it is clearly one that is being developed in a theological environment now Newton Newton studies Descartes in depth and he's not amused this silly this is just nonsense I'd use a different word if my kids weren't here. It's, it can't be right. Space doesn't move. Space for Newton is like a big three-dimensional piece of graph paper. It's nailed down under reality. It's where things are. Space is fixed and immovable. And from there, he posits his law of universal gravitation and his three laws of motion. The next theory of gravitation. This is the one we all learned in high school, right? The one that teaches you how to calculate how far an object falls after some time, T, right? It is, for Newton, a part of his theology. He says that space is fixed and immovable because space is God's sensorium. Space is God's sense organ. God knows everything. God knows I moved from here to here. Why? Because I'm in a different point of space. He can feel it. God is everywhere. Literally. That's not just is as in has a property. That's is as in the the equality, right? He is. Everywhere is a part of God. Space is God's sensorium. He says this in two very different places. And so if you stand very still and just move a little bit, it tickles God. (laughs) You got to move before you get scratched. And he says, it's interesting, there's a, a an Anglican uh, pastor at the time who's giving a series of sermons where he's saying that Newton's theory of physics actually supports something akin to what we would now call intelligent design. It shows that there must have been an intelligence that created the world or else it wouldn't have these clearly rational rules that it follows. And Newton writes him a letter. And in the letter he says, this is to Richard Bentley, he says... It pleases me that you say so because it is for that reason that I wrote it. He says there's only one mistake. He says, when you look at gravitation, two possibilities. Either the attraction between this pen and the earth is intrinsic, right? There's something in the pen and something in the earth that are pulling on each other. It's intrinsic to the objects. Or it is extrin- externally applied to them. That is, there is some agent He says, natural or supernatural, I know not which. Which causes this? He says, you're attributing the first view to me. No, no, no. I believe the second. That there is some agent who could be supernatural, who has the ability to move really, really heavy objects over potentially infinite distances, whose name might rhyme with rod, right? And so when we see gravitation, this pen falls. Why? The hand of God is pushing it down. Oh, sorry. Apparently the hand of God doesn't like you very much. Right? The idea is that what we see, when we see gravitational phenomena, is actually the working of God in the world. And you've got to remember, he's a Protestant. For him, the removal of God is an abomination. God is present in the world. You can see his workings. And so what you see in the sort of physics that we all studied, well, you guys will, what we see there is Protestant physics. He was worried that the Cartesian picture gave rise to what we call deism, right? deism as opposed to theism. Theism is the idea that there is an active God who is present in the world. Deism is that you have a perfect God who creates the clockwork universe. He winds it and then, you know, he goes off to play golf or have a beer or do whatever it is he wants to do, right? And that deist point of view, Newton thought, was just horrible. God is in the world. And so when we look at the physics, it is intentionally designed to have a role for the divine in the physical. And so when you look at Newton, you see Protestant physics. Now that doesn't mean that when you take physics in high school or in college, that really you're taking a theology class or just hiding it from you. No, you can do the science without those presuppositions. But if you look at why it was created as it was created by the person who created it, it's Protestant physics. So all of a sudden the question, is relativity theory Jewish science Not such a stupid question anymore. If Descartes gave us Catholic physics and Newton gave us Protestant physics, might Einstein have given us Jewish physics? Seems a reasonable question. Yeah, no. (laughs) It wasn't. We know what he was reading. He was reading the French mathematician uh, and philosopher Henri Poincaré. He was reading the German uh, physicist and philosopher... Uh, Ernst Mach, he was reading the Dutch physicist H.A. Lawrence, he was reading uh, the Scottish philosopher David Hume, none of which were Jewish, none of whom were Jewish. So if you happen to be writing a book called Einstein's Jewish Science, available for $20, (laughs) and the answer is no, you keep writing. So is there some way? So if the content of the theory of relativity isn't Jewish in any way, maybe it's in how he thought. So if it's not in the what, maybe it's in the how. So theory of relativity. Okay, let's do it this way. Two simple concepts. I need both hands for this one. Two simple concepts. Stay with me. Covariance and invariance. Okay, covariance. Now, is the pen to the left or right of my hand? Yes. Stop it. Simple question, is the pen to the left or right of my hand? You are going to say to the left. I'm going to say to the right. Now, this isn't a relative question. It's not that, well, there's his truth and his truth and her truth and my truth and your truth. No, 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 no. There's a fact of the matter. From where you are sitting... The pen is to the left, right? If that guy says, it's to the right, what do we think of him? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? Left is the one with the L, right? There's a fact of the matter. For you, it is to the left. For me, it is to the right. So there is a truth, but that truth depends upon your perspective. Right. Once you nail down a frame of reference, once you nail down a viewpoint, there is a fact. But that fact only exists from a perspective. Covariant varies with your position. Invariant, now if I say, is the pen between my hands? Yes. And it doesn't matter how or where you look from, that pen is between the hands. That's an invariant fact. right? So invariant and covariant. And we like to think that invariant facts really say something about the actual structure of the universe, right? Because, you know, let's say, you know, I hear some strange comment from her and I think, well, wait a minute, do I believe this? Now, if I hear it from him too, you know her? No. So if he doesn't know her and he says the same thing, I'm thinking, oh. And then if I hear it from her, you know either of those two? No. Now what am I thinking? Oh, if it doesn't matter where the person's coming from, there's probably some real truth to that, right? And so invariant facts seem to be the ones that are actually the case in reality itself. They aren't just truths of my perspective. There's something deeper to it. And so what Einstein does in the theory of relativity is take things that we think are invariant and show us they they turn out to be covariant, right? So how long would you say that pen is? All right, six inches. So if it's six inches now, how long is it now? Well, it's six inches. It's just moving, right? Einstein says no. Einstein says that as the pen moves, if you see it moving now, to you it's moving. To me it's still, right? So if I was moving this way at three-quarters the speed of light, you would measure it not as six inches, you would measure it as four inches. I would still measure it as six Whoa! it is covariant. Length is a function of your frame of reference, of your perspective. Which one is right? Well, it's not right. It's just right in a point of view in the same way to the left and to the right. There's not a right answer. There's a right answer from your point of view and a right answer from mine. But it's not only length. Lengths may squish. But if we were to, say, synchronize our watches... So one second on his watch is one second on my watch. And the watches are perfectly synchronized. They should be synchronized whether I'm still or moving or in the opening scene of West Side Story. (laughs) Right? It shouldn't matter. Right? Time is time. It's invariant. Yeah, not so much. What Einstein says is, actually, if I were moving across this floor at three-quarters the speed of light, you would hear the snaps much longer than a second. Time stretches. And we know this. This gives rise to one of the stranger effects in physics. It's what's called Paul Langevin's twins paradox, right? Right? So we have identical twins. can't tell them apart. right? They're about 20 years old. He becomes a NASA astronaut. He works at McDonald's. It's OK you're a manager. Right? He gets on a spaceship, flies fast, very far, comes back to Earth. Now they both have calendars, and they both have atomic clocks. They're both keeping time perfectly. Comes back 20 years later. How old is he? How old is he? He's 28. Not only looks 28, and you do. Right? No, he is 28. He said, look, I've got an atomic clock. I've got a calendar. It's only been eight years. Whoa. That's weird. Yeah. That's relativity. So... Lengths squish, time stretches. And it's other things too, right? Other things that we thought were invariant. So mass, the faster you go, the heavier you get. This is not a reason to tell the doctor you're not going to work out on the treadmill. (laughs) The faster you go, the heavier you get. This is why nothing can go faster than the speed of light. It's not an engineering problem. Nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And that's why. What I usually do in the classroom is I will take a chair. Usually I'm not in nicely carpeted rooms. And I will do that. And I'll say to the class, okay, what just happened? I pushed the chair and it moved, right? I exerted a force and it caused an acceleration, right? Now, what happens if we add mass to the chair? And at this point, I'll usually take a slight young lady and put her in the chair. I'd say, OK, if I want the same acceleration, what do I need? More force. More force. And so I give the chair a push, and it slides across. And we pull it back. We add more mass. And this time, I get usually a, a big husky football player, and I sit her down, him down on her lap to the <laughs> hilarity of the classroom. I say, OK, to get the same acceleration, what do I need? Even more force. So if I push that harder on the chair, I get a hernia. (laughs) As you go faster, you get heavier. As you approach the speed of light, your mass approaches infinite. So if that chair were infinitely heavy, how much force would I need to accelerate it at all? An infinite amount. Which means I'd need an infinite amount of energy and you ain't getting that. That's why nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Okay? To show you, How much of a a nerd I was, still am, in college, we took a digital meter and hooked it up to the speedometer of my buddy's car so that it would display as we drove down the street how much heavier the car would be from the point of view of someone on the side who was measuring it. And clearly we had plenty of time to drive the car on weekends because none of us could get dates. Okay, here's a therapy. I found one. <laughs> so these things that we thought were invariant, were facts of the world, turn out to be covariant. Turns out to depend on your frame of reference. So is everything relative in the theory of relativity? No, not everything. There is a very important invariant. There's a very important thing which doesn't change at all. And that's what we call the space-time interval. Now, between those two snaps is a distance and a time. For a moving observer, the distance will squish and the time will stretch, right? But if we calculate the four-dimensional distance between them, that will stay the same for all observers. Okay, now time out. He said four-dimensional. We're not getting new agey here, okay? What I mean by dimension is simply the number of numbers needed to uniquely specify a location. Right? So if you think about your house, how many numbers, not numerals, how many numbers in the address? One. I only need one number to know how far down the street to go to get to your house. That's a one-dimensional space. But if you go to Manhattan, how many numbers do you need? Two, right? I need to know the street and the avenue. Two numbers. That's a two-dimensional space. But then you'll get to the building in Manhattan and you will need a third number you'll need the number of the floor to push in the elevator. One, two, three-dimensional space. But if you have an appointment, and when I do this for college audiences, I'll say, "Yo, if you have a job interview, and then it's like, oh, yeah, we used to have those back when. Sorry about your economy. (laughs) If you had a job interview, you would need a fourth number, right? Because there's somebody interviewing before you, somebody interviewing after you. You need the time. So if you want to uniquely specify an event, I need four numbers. That's all I mean when I say that time is the fourth dimension. So if time is the fourth dimension, what's the fifth dimension? Yeah, it's an old singing group from the 60s, yes. So it turns out that when you calculate the four-dimensional distance between those two snaps, that number will be the same for everyone. That's an invariant. That's a fact of the universe. That's an absolute truth. But here's what's interesting. We don't live four-dimensionally. We don't see four-dimensionally. We don't measure four-dimensionally. If you want to get that number, what do you have to do? You have to go from your vantage point, from your frame of reference, and measure the three dimensions and the one dimension. And that's going to be different for different people. So there is an absolute truth, but it's not accessible to any one of us from our limited perspective. But if we figure out how those different perspectives connect to each other, then we can find, as Einstein did, this higher truth, this deeper insight into the reality of the underlying universe. Okay, Look where we are. There is an absolute truth, but no one has direct access to it. We all see it from different perspectives, and it's in seeing how those perspectives interact with one another that the deeper truth emerges. Where have we seen that before? That's the Jewish thing that my friend was pointing out way back when. This is a Jewish style of reasoning. Now, why did Einstein think in this way? And you see it not just in this theory. You also see it in his general theory of relativity. You see it in his solution for the photoelectric effect. You see this style of reasoning all throughout. Why? Well, we can't say you know it's because he had a great degree of Jewish learning. He didn't. He had when he was young, an uncle come and give him informal lessons. Then when he was in high school, they had religion classes. It was mandatory. And so they took all the Catholics and you learned catechism stuff. They took all the Jews and put them in a room. Einstein received a letter of congratulations on his 50th birthday from his high school Jewish religion class teacher. And he wrote back saying, oh, how wonderful to hear from you. I wish I had listened to anything you said. So it's clear that Einstein did not get this because he had a deep background in Talmudic reasoning. He didn't. Well, did he get it because he grew up in a Jewish community? Maybe. Reading minds is hard enough with living people, with dead people? Yeah, don't try it. So why? We don't know. But it's interesting that it's there. Is it there in other Jewish thinkers? It is. So Emil Durkheim, the founding father of sociology, His father, grandfather, great-grandfather were all rabbis in France. You see it there. Do you see it in all Jewish thinkers? No. If you think about the other great scientist of Einstein's time, the name that instantly pops to mind is? hmm? No? Freud. Freud. Sigmund Freud, right? Now think about what Freud did. Freud and Einstein's lives almost perfectly parallel. If you read their biographies, it's stunning how similar they were. They both grew up in secular Jewish homes. They both experienced anti-Semitism in school, and that's where they got their sense of Jewish identity, which they had as a cultural sense, but not a religious sense. You know, it's, it's really interesting how very similar their minds were. Both of them were pacifists, argued against war. Really similar. So you'd think that they'd also be similar in this way, but what's interesting is they aren't, right? So for Freud, right, what's happening? Well, Freud's picture of mind, remember what it's like, right? The mind is much more complicated than you think it is, right? When you say, well, I made up my mind, so you think you chose your motivation. No, that's just a little part of your mind, right? The, the, the metaphor he gives, it's, it's like a, an iceberg, or in this case, a greenberg, right? And it's just that little tip that's peeking out that's the conscious mind. But there's so much more that's under the surface, Right? And so the real reason you're doing what you're doing, right? remember Freud is dealing with people having all sorts of strange behavioral happenings. Right? He says, if we want to get to it, we need to understand the subconscious. We need to get underneath. Now, psychoanalysis, as Freud sets it out, is interesting because there's a definite spatial component to it. The way it works is that you have two people, right? You have the patient and you have the therapist. The patient, I probably shouldn't do this in such a nice room. The patient is on the couch. I'll keep my feet off the table. And he or she is facing this way, right? And what are they doing? They're talking about their dreams. They're free associating. They're talking about their childhood and how they're controlling Jewish. I'm sorry, Mom. Right? The therapist is behind, unseen by the patient, making, you know, only the occasional noise. Mhm. Mhm. Our 50 minutes are up. And it is the therapist, the psychoanalyst, who alone has access to the absolute truth. Right? You would think, well, it's dialogical, right? They have to be talking back and forth. There are two different points of view. That seems like that might be ju- no, no. Right? If anything, what you see in Freud's picture is a very Catholic picture. The psychoanalyst has a pope-like position where he and he alone has access to the absolute underlying truth. So you don't see this Jewish style of thought in every Jewish thinker. But what's interesting is where you are starting to see it. In the last 20 years, you've seen it pop up in other places. One place that you frequently see it is in feminist thinkers. Now, about 20 years ago, when we were in you know, the, the heat of the whole postmodernist thing, right you, you went to this relativist place where, you know, there's you know, her truth and his truth, and because they're coming from different places, right, they are different truth. But what we're seeing now is something more sophisticated what's called standpoint epistemology, which is a fancy way of saying the same thing we've been talking about. That yes, there is an absolute truth and that people from different backgrounds are going to get different elements of it and that we need to pay attention to people from very different backgrounds because they are going to give us elements of the truth that we, from our perspective, aren't going to gain access to. You also see it in post-colonial Africana philosophers. Same sort of thing. Where are you seeing it? You're seeing it in... The writings of people who are outsiders, who are in the minority groups. Now, Einstein reveled in being an outsider. He called himself an Einspanner, which literally translates to a, a one-horse carriage, a lone horse. Right? He's an outsider. He's different. And it's that difference, right? I mean, think about Albert Einstein. When you think about Albert Einstein, what comes to mind? The hair. The hair. Here's a man who changed the complete way we see the world. Here's a man who affected history. Here's a man who changed everything. And what do we remember? We remember the hair. What is it about the hair? Well, I mean, think about it. Hair is political, right? Says the old guy with the ponytail. Right? I mean, when you look at a person, the very first thing... No, okay, sorry. The very first thing you see is the face and the hair, right? By Einstein, growing his hair like that. What was he doing? You know, Einstein didn't wear a belt or socks. Exactly. Exactly. Right? You want to talk about hair being political, red, white, and blue. No. All right. But the idea here is, right, you didn't wear socks. Why? I have shoes on. What do I need socks for? You didn't wear a belt. I have pants of filth. Why do I need a belt? Right? These are things, right? why did you get up and put on socks this morning? Right? Almost everyone here is wearing socks. Did you get up this morning and think, okay, sock or no sock? Sock. No, you just get up and you reach for the socks. Why? Because you're told that's what you're supposed to do. Einstein said, I'm not going to do something simply because I'm told I'm supposed to do it. What did the hair signify? I'm different. I'm not afraid to show it. We all love Einstein. It's not just Jews, except for that guy. Right? It's not just Jews. Everybody loves Einstein. Why? Because he is. He's that outsider. Right? He's different. Right? You pull up in traffic. There's a car in front of you with a bumper sticker that has a quotation on it. Odds are, it's from Einstein. And it doesn't mean it's a Jew in front of you. Right? The idea here is we all love him. Why? Because he does represent to us the outsider. And think about what it means to be an outsider. In the 19th century, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said that when you have political power, you get something very important. You get control of the language. And when you control the language, you control the concepts by which we make sense of the world. If you're in a minority group, you speak their language. You talk the way they talk. You have to. But you also talk the way you talk. right? If you're in a minority group, there's always this sort of double consciousness happening where you're simultaneously understanding things in multiple ways. Right? Let's move from science to, to humor. Right? Probably will shock no one that I do some stand-up comedy on the side. Right? Think about jokes for a minute. Think about comedy. Why is it that the great comedians are almost always from minority groups? Right? In the 40s and 50s, and into the sixties we had the Borscht Belt comics, right? In the seventies and eighties we had this wave of great African American comics. Now we're sort of seeing the back end of Latino comics who were up there in the in the spotlight. Why? What is it about minority groups that are funnier? And part of it is think about how a joke works. Knock knock. Who's there Knock knock. Who's there? To. to who? No? To whom? Right? Think about how the joke works. There's a setup that leads you to think in one direction and then a punchline that makes you realize, oh, I needed to be thinking of it in this completely different way. Right? Who's going to be able to come up with jokes very easily? Somebody who is always seeing things in two different ways. Right? And so what we see in Einstein is the physics of an outsider. And if you think about Jews, Jews are a strange group. Right? I mean, before the founding of the modern state of Israel, they were pretty much everywhere, but had nowhere. Everywhere they were, they were outsiders, always outsiders. And so you had this different way of thinking that was just part of the structure. So if we think of Jewish, not as anything Judaic or Hebraic, nothing connected to Torah or theological, but if we think of it as this general sense of an outsider then in Einstein, what we do see is the physics of an outsider. And in that way, at least we have some way of thinking of it as Jewish science. No, it's not Hebraic science. It's not Judaic science. It's something particular to Jews. It's something that can be owned by any outsider. Anybody who's different in any way is now, in some sense, Jewish. Right? You're Jewish? You are now. Welcome to the clan. You're now part of the tribe. Right, so Einstein, being the outsider, belongs to everyone who feels that they are in some way removed, some way different, and unafraid to say it. So, in that sense, and it is a weak sense, I will grant you, there is some sense in which the theory of relativity is Jewish science. Now, it's not a way that would make the Nazis happy. And my sense is, if you could ever do anything to annoy the Nazis, I'm right there with you. So on that, I'll say thank you very much. I know I probably ran a little long, but if there are some questions, do we have time for? Okay, if there are questions. I'd be free to. You, uh, thank
2: you. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned uh, early on uh, uh, something you could call Catholic science, something you could call Protestant science. Uh, in um, uh, Descartes and then Newton and then something you could call Jewish science as a a style or approach to thinking through uh, the problems that you observe within a cultural framework that makes sense. And I'm wondering if you've inquired whether there could also be something called um, Islamic science. And the reason I, I ask that is because there was a period of time in history when um, the Islamic uh, countries were very uh, proficient in mathematics and engineering and so forth and had a a type of science. And that raises, for me, the larger question of is there something that could all of these types or approaches be categorized as types of monotheistic Western science? So that that explains why science Historically, had roots uh, that were specifically developed in the, in the West, and why uh, Eastern cultures have been sort of late to the to the party, as
1: it were. Fantastic question, and the answer is yes, and it it, it it's fascinating. Though, so if you look at classical Western astronomy and classical Chinese astronomy, very different approaches. Why? Theological. So, if you look at Western One of the things that we've been looking for from the beginning are the regularities, right? We look for symmetry. We look for ways in which there is order and structure. Why? Because there's this picture of the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-rational creator. And so you look for the evidence that is akin to that. If you look at classical Chinese, right, and in both cases, they were both astrological as much as astronomical. But the astronomical approach from China Look not for the regularities. They looked for all the exceptions, right? the comets, the retrograde motions, all the unusual occurrences. Why? Well, you were coming from a Taoist background in which you had yin and yang. You had competing forces. And so what you were looking for was evidence of a give and take. And so in the same night sky, they saw it in two different ways. Why? Because you had these intellectual backgrounds that were shaped by the theological uh, commitments. Right? If you look at physics today, we still look to give symmetry arguments. We still look for you know, conservation arguments. Why? Because simplicity must be true because it's got to be elegant. Now, in the case of Islamic science, and you did you know, what we call the dark ages or the golden age of Islam. And what was happening at this point? Well, the center of learning was Baghdad. Right? Which was a city. A huge city. Now, interesting bit is that you could not, I don't know if it's still the case, but you could not tax Muslims. Now, if you have a city, what do you need? All sorts of money to do all sorts of things, for the roads, to pick up garbage, to do everything, to pay your police, right? Where are you going to get the money if you can't tax Muslims? You need lots of non-Muslims. And so what you saw was they would import people and they, like us, Let's bring in the smart people. And so you had this incredible situation in Baghdad, and then the Spanish got very, you know, they were Muslim too. They got jealous, and so they started bringing in. And so you had people from India, from China, from Greece. You had Jews, and you had this unbelievable melting pot of all of these different cultures which were smushed together. Why? Because you needed a tax base. And what happened was they talked to each other. And all of a sudden, this built off of that, this played off of that, right? We had in India. They were the first ones with a place-value number system. right? So you get in your car, right in the speedometer, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then it flips over to 10. We didn't have that. right? Before that, right? the Romans used what kind of numerals? Roman numerals. Thank you, yes. Roman numerals, right? Now, Roman numerals are really hard if you're trying to do any mathematics. Try dividing XVI by LCMII. You can't do it. You can't turn mathematics into something that has the simple algorithms we're all taught in third grade unless you have a place value system. And no one had it but the Indians. They brought them, and this is how we got what we now call Hindu-Arabic numerals. This is where our numbers come from. Because they needed tax money, so they brought in Indian mathematicians who then talked to the Greek mathematicians who had geometry done in this beautiful, elegant way, axiomatized, and so what happens? You get this hybrid, and out comes number theory, Outcomes comes algebra, right? Anything that starts with al is probably transliterated from the Arabic, right? So algebra, Al seltzer Al Green. Right. All of this comes, right, from the Arabic. Al Capone. Right? So the idea here is what you saw there was this unbelievable growth, but why? Because you had this cross-pollination of different intellectuals from all over the world bringing what they had to the stew. And so, in a certain sense, what was Muslim science really was Muslim-facilitated science. And... Einstein saw that model as really the key to the future, right? you got to understand, Europe is in flames. You've got revolutions. You've got world wars, right? And Einstein was an internationalist. He said, look at science. Science is the one place where we can have a Britishman, you know, we can have a Brit, a Frenchman, and a German sit down at the same and make progress and be civil and talk the same language. Science, science is the one model that we have for really worldwide progress and peace. And so he did see science as not only providing a new worldview, but providing a new way of being in the world, which he thought was advantageous. Now, who would hate that? Who would hate internationalism, cosmopolitanism? Well those who thought that nationalism and patriotism were first and foremost. Those who thought everything was conditioned by race and blood and races could be ranked and there was a certain group on top who were the best and everyone else was inferior. So Einstein's scientific internationalist point of view threatened the very heart of the Nazi picture. And so when they saw the theory of relativity, it wasn't just science by a Jew, so we need to undermine it, it was the entire scientific process that threatened their way of being. And so it needed to be taken care of. Now you have to understand, Einstein was a very, very political person. Right? We think of him as this sort of wise, grandfatherly clown. Right? When we think of Einstein, we think of you know, the picture of him on the bicycle, or the one where he's sticking his tongue out. Right? We all know these images. But Einstein is a young man, unafraid of controversy, and very, very political. And so he was making waves at a time when Germany had a deep cultural split. And so he was hated, not just disliked, hated by the German nationalists. And he did everything he could to stoke that fire because he hated them too. He grew up in you know, a very nationalistic Germany that you know equated you know, patriotism, militarism, and anti-Semitism. And he left, renounced his citizenship, swore he would never go back. He was then lured back. But when he came back, he ignored his own advice to just keep his mouth shut. He didn't. And so he became just despised. Right? After World War I, the German economy just tanks. Right, The Weimar Republic is established, and they're forced to negotiate with the winners of the war. And Germany was saddled with this huge debt, reparations to pay for everything, And as a result, their economy just collapsed. And everybody was poor. Now, if you're poor, what do you need? Money. Money. If you're famous and you need money, what do you do? Book tour. (laughs) Right? And so what does Einstein do? He goes on tour. But where's he going to go? Back to Willie Sutton. Where the money is? Where's the money? It ain't in Germany. It's in France, it's in England, it's in the U.S. And so here he is, sailing on ships of the enemy, going to the countries of the enemy, those who were killing our brave sons. And what's he doing there? He's getting embraced as the new German, the good German, the rehabilitated German, and he's giving talks. And he engaged in what we now call dog whistle politics. He would use words and phrases that, his hosts would not quite understand, but back home, it was very clear who he was pointing out and calling out. It was very politically loaded. And here he was, on the enemy shore, making fun of us. And so he was hated. He was thought of in the same way that say, Jane Fonda was hated during Vietnam or Michael Moore after 9-11. He was seen as a traitor. And so he was despised. And part of it is that his worldview and his Science played into a, a larger worldview that was incompatible with the foundations of Nazism.: um, being, a oh. I heard, sorry. being a vegetarian for 38 years, um, I heard um, 39 I heard that he was vegetarian. Is that true? And does that have anything to do with his, his uh, science? Uh, he became a vegetarian late in life. Uh, he grew up in Germany, which meant he ate a lot of sausage. But once he came to the US he actually does become in his later years a vegetarian and it's not connected to the science. It's for him just an ethical question. It, you know, the, the idea of killing so that I can have this just he had a problem with it and so you know. Now it wasn't necessarily health related because the one thing he didn't give up was smoking. And well it was a pipe. And it killed him. And, in fact, he, the doctor said, you are not allowed to buy any more tobacco. So he would go into the offices of his colleagues, fill his pipe, and then leave. <laughs> so, yes, don't smoke. Other questions? Last one? Last one. All right. Uh, so the Greek philosopher Carneades is famous for going into the city and arguing for justice on one day, and the next day he argues the opposite. Um, and so um, Carneades was one of the famous academic skeptics. So I was wondering, I guess, um, the relation between Einstein's science and his Jewishness and skepticism. Okay. Yeah. So the idea here is, for a skeptic, there is no truth. For Einstein, there was an absolute truth, but that absolute truth was too big to fit in any one perspective. So what the skeptics were trying to do was to undermine our belief in some objective fact of the matter. What Einstein was saying is, no, there is an objective fact of the matter. It just isn't one that's accessible to our limited perspective. So in that sense, it's a a fundamentally different thing. Okay, well, thanks everybody very much.